All right, so we have some information on the Reformation. There, we'll talk about the idea of assurance of salvation, which was taught by Martin Luther mm. and, and uh, comes out through the, the revival times in the 1800s where the assurance of salvation became a keynote in the revival. Okay. So cool. you want me to start in? Yeah, let's go for it. In uh, the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, he has a little section about assurance of salvation. It comes in, in one of the later chapters of the book where he talks about how in the time of the Reformation, which was 500 years ago, the, the, we, we, we date the beginning of the Reformation in um, about uh, 1517 uh, when Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses. And so the, the, the Reformation itself was going on about 500 years ago, starting in those days. And Martin Luther was a child of the Roman Catholic Church, the State Church of Europe. And in the State Church, they had a teaching that, that the knowledge of salvation, to know that you definitely are forgiven and would be ultimately in heaven, was a sin of presumption. Hmm. They might have believed that you could know momentarily that you're forgiven, but not ultimately forgiven. Interesting. And and that it would be wrong to say that you you knew you had that kind of knowledge. Yeah. So when the Reformation occurred, Martin Luther felt that that this view that the Roman Catholics had was very wrong, that it was not true that you couldn't know, you can know, hmm. and that you could know that you'll be finally saved. And it had to do with with what faith really involved when you make a commitment to God to, to believe the gospel, the just shall live by faith, and, and going along with it was the knowledge of ultimate salvation. However, it appears that with a Philip Melanchthon who followed after Martin Luther, Martin Luther didn't live to be an old man, uh, and, he, and he was followed by Philip Melanchthon, and others in the Lutheran tradition backtracked on Luther's view. Oh, really? Yeah, they backed off on it. And to this day, many Lutherans, I'm not making this as a blanket statement because there's a lot of different kinds of Lutherans out there, yeah. more, some more evangelical than others, some more ritualistic than others, but, but to this day, Lutherans have taught that you can't have a true knowledge of ultimate salvation. They really have a system of faith which is Calvinistic, but it simply is, you, you might be one of the elect, but you can't know that. Mm, and you really can't know that you will be forgiven. And so the man on the street has the idea, the Lutheran, common Lutheran, has the idea that you're momentarily saved or lost. Interesting. <laughs> and not really knowing. They're, they think, many of them, like a low Arminian. <laughs> <laughs> That's ironic. Yeah, it is. So, in the time of the Puritans, though, they they did comment and talk about this thing about assurance, and they dealt with it a little differently than Luther did. I, according to uh, um, uh, uh, J.I. Packer, J.I. Packer, he was the one who wrote the book 
the knowing God. Mm-hmm. And it, it, the book is a promotion of the teaching about knowing God as you have it taught by the Puritans. Okay. And so he's constantly referencing the Puritans. And J.I. Packer, he was quite involved out at Regent College out in Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, and he, he was an Anglican priest. He was a more evangelical guy. Uh, he, he believed more fundamental doctrines than a lot of the Anglicans do. I think he took a stand for biblical inerrancy, for instance. Um, he was, although he also in, in joined in with that uh, evangelicals and Catholics together. So he, he wrote in that document uh, promoting the idea that evangelicals and Catholics can work together. So he, <laughs> so he, he wasn't a, a real, he was not a hard-nosed fundamentalist. Yeah. By any terms, he wasn't a separatist as such. Yeah. He, he didn't leave the Anglican Church, no matter how bad off the Anglican Church became. And he, he stayed in it, and, uh, and yet he held on to a lot of, of biblical views nice. about church leadership, uh, about inerrancy, things yeah. like that. Of course, the Anglicans are getting, I, the ones I brush shoulders with, seem to me... <clears throat> are a lot more biblically orthodox, depending on where where you're at, you know. But I always thought, oh, high church, you know, Anglican. High church. Are they really Christians? And then, but you start meeting, and you're like, oh, well, they do preach the gospel there. There, there are a lot of different kinds of Anglicans, like most of these denominations. Where if you, uh, you, you can't say all Presbyterians are this way, all Anglicans are this way, all. Uh, here in the United States, Anglicans are called Episcopalians because oh, yeah. we don't have the Church of England operating here. Yeah. Anglican is the Church of of England, the yeah. Anglican Church, and and uh, Episcopalians around the world, you may find them quite different. For instance, in Africa, the missionaries from the Church of England from the 1800s did a lot of evangelism in Africa, and the Episcopalian or the Anglican churches in Africa can be uh, much more uh, fundamental hmm. than uh, 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 many of these, uh, many of the English Anglicans, for instance. Yeah. So it's a, it's a mixed bag, hmm. very mixed bag. And I, I think that's true sometimes with Methodists, for instance. Yep. Sometimes you, you'll meet Methodists, you'd be very surprised. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm generally surprised when, when I, when I meet people from certain denominational backgrounds, and they're fundamental in their way of thinking. So, uh, uh, J. I. Packer, when he lived, he was one of the world's leading authorities, really, on the. Old Puritans. He'd done a lot of work about John Owen, Richard Baxter, and John Bunyan, and those were the three heavyweights of the period of the Puritans. Hmm. The Puritans they lived back in the time of Queen Elizabeth in England, and they were trying to purify the the Church of England. And uh, the uh, Queen Elizabeth put a strong stop to it. <laughs> she she said, "Look." We have our we have our doctrinal statement. We have our creed. 
uh, uh, we have our prayer book, and that's what we're going to, and you go along with this or you'll leave. And there were a lot of these Puritans who did not agree with certain statements in the prayer book, and that became a point of contention. They were expelled from the Anglican church and sent off uh, to live out in a cottage out in the country, and it effectively put a big period mark on the whole official period of the Puritans. Oh, okay. Yeah. Are they all fled to uh, Switzerland? <laughs> Some of them may. Uh, you have a lot of Puritan influence, the doctrines of the Puritans. But strictly speaking, the Puritans were those, if you, uh, were those men who were trying to purify the church while they were still in it, before they got expelled. Okay. A lot of Congregationalists are the, the Puritans who were kicked out of okay. the Anglican Church. So Oliver Cromwell, he was a prime minister, was he? What was oh, he? Um, well, he was called the Lord Protector. In his time, they had actually, by an act of parliament, convicted the King of England of treason and had him beheaded. Oh, wow. Uh, I want to say Charles I was beheaded under the influence of Oliver Cromwell. Wow. He was a military guy, and but he rose to the chief place of authority in England. And people who study democracy or representative government, the idea of a republic, they look back to the time of Oliver Cromwell in the 1600s as the introduction of this whole form of government that we today celebrate here in the United States. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They think of him, the politicians, they don't like his, his puritanical side. Yeah. People endlessly criticize that. And he was a, he was a strong, very religious man and, uh, and definitely going along with the Puritans, promoting the Puritans, but um, uh, also on the political side, mm -hmm. giving an alternative to the idea of the monarchy. See, okay. they've gotten rid of the monarch. Yeah. Well, now, after his, he died, his son was in a position of influence, but then after them, Charles II came back into power. Okay, and then a bunch of Puritans got thrown in prison. Or no, which... Yeah, which well, uh, go ahead. Yeah, when did, when did like, Bunyan get jailed and all that stuff? Um, you know, Bunyan had been a, uh, a soldier under Cromwell. Okay. And uh, I think it was in the time of Charles II that he got did his prison time because there was a backlash. Yeah. All these people who were favorable toward the Puritans under Cromwell, they really got taken to the woodshed when uh, Charles' son came into power okay. after you know his father had been beheaded by these people. Yeah. So it, it's interesting that you bring up Cromwell because Cromwell, it, one of the things that he did was he facilitated the colonization of portions of Ireland because the Roman Catholic populace in Ireland was giving a lot of trouble to the English. And so, so they went over, and, and Cromwell took an army over to Ireland to, in a way, purge the landscape. <laughs> to kill the Amalekites? Uh, yeah, that, well, he, he, was, he was a Calvinist, and he... He, he and the Calvinists were all church state people, and they tended 
to look at the power of government and the power of the church as really the same thing. That, that whereas the Roman Catholics ruled over governments, the Reformation churches and the Calvinist churches sought the support of government, mm -hmm. but they worked with the government. Okay. So in all those Calvinistic and Reformed churches, like the churches in Scandinavia, in, in Denmark, uh, in, in portions of the Netherlands and Switzerland, they're state churches. The yep. Presbyterian Church in Scotland is a state church. Yeah. And the Anglican Church is the Church of England. Yeah. And, and, and they all are working under the support of the government. I think tax dollars in those places all go to the support of the church hmm. and the pay, they pay the salaries of the ministers and help out with the building and so on, and depending on the country, of course. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's a mutually supportive role that they play. And, and so in that way of thinking, they have a thinking very much like in the days of the Old Testament, when Joshua went in to purge the promised land of the Canaanites yeah. and then to allow for the settlement of the 12 tribes of Israel, well, the, then Cromwell, he's going to go over to Ireland and here are these heathen who are opposed to the doctrines of the Church of England yeah. and, he, and he ended up purging sections of the country and then encouraging the settlement of what were called plantations where settlers from Scotland and England went over and, and settled. It principally, it happened a lot in the north of Ireland, okay. around Ulster. Okay. And, and that was Oliver Cromwell's plan. Hmm. And, and, the, and the famous quote is, to Connacht or to hell. And Connacht was the was an area in the very far west. It was like going out to live on a surface of a rock. It was not good farmland. It was a very austere, difficult place to go. But he's saying, you go over there, and if you don't go to the far west, we'll, we'll kill you. <laughs> we'll yeah. consign you to hell. And Daupigny, who is a Swiss historian who wrote the what was, uh, in his time, he wrote in the 1800s, the official history of the Reformation, the Reformation in, in Europe, and then he wrote a volume on the Reformation in England. And he tells about uh, Cromwell and Cromwell's campaign in Ireland. And he himself uh, was, he was a, a Swiss, uh, very sympathetic to uh, Reformation thinking and and from that background, really. Yeah. But he, he ponders it and looks at it and he says, how could any Christian think the way Cromwell did? No, he's, he's not talking here like an Arminian yeah. or like uh, a dispensationalist. He wasn't a dispensationalist. He's not talking like uh, somebody who would be on the other side of things. But, he, but as somebody who might have had sympathy for a lot of the policies of Cromwell, but looking at what he did in Ireland, think, uh, and he wonders out loud and, and asks the question, how can a real Christian uh, do what Cromwell did? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So the this is something that people who are always promoting the Puritans 
don't like to bring up or maybe want to purposefully ignore. Mm. And that is that the Puritans believed in the church-state system. They most definitely did. And that kind of view of the church-state agreement or arrangement is the thing that facilitated the military campaign of a man like Cromwell over in Ireland. And it might have been one episode in his life. You, we can't condemn a man strictly because of one thing he did. Yeah. But when he went over there, we're not talking about hundreds, but thousands of people who were killed by, the, by his troops over there. So it had a gigantic, uh, a, a gigantic effect. And, and, uh, and for decades, and we'll say centuries after that, the Irish have fostered these memories of the involvement of the English and their deep hatred, often, for the English, which goes back for centuries. The existence of orange on that flag. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, they chose their own flag as if to say, we, we want to have one whole island, the entire island, all united, mm. both Catholic and Irish, both green and orange. Okay. And the, the orange being the color of the Protestants yep. and the green the color of the Catholics. Although uh, the Republic of Ireland has never dominated or ruled over the whole island. Yeah. It, it, that's not the way it is. So I, I, but I, I bring up this point about the Puritans. The Puritans did believe in church-state system. That's a feature of Calvinism. Here in the United States, we don't think about that at all. Yeah. Usually when people talk about Reformed thinking or Calvinistic thinking, uh, we don't have a church-state system. Nobody is very loudly promoting the idea. They, they don't talk about it. But, but that was the case over in Europe, and it really is part of the fabric. It's kind of like the Hindus saying, well, we're, not, we're, we're going to outlaw the caste system. So Gandhi outlaws the caste system officially in their constitution. But the caste system is hugely alive in India. Yeah. You, you don't really get rid of the caste system. Yeah. So, so to say, well, because we live in America and we don't think about or embrace church-state thinking, that therefore... It really has no consequence. Really, it was a very big part of the whole way of thinking in reform thinking. So, uh, back to G.I. Packer's book then, he's writing a book on the knowledge of God, which is a beautiful book and that is well written and has a lot of really tremendous things in it. Oh, I think it's a must read. Yeah, people <clears throat> consider it a must read, but in it, he promotes a very traditional Calvinistic view of salvation. Hmm. And he's very strong at the way in which he interprets predestination and election and, and, and the, unique, the unique features of Calvinism. They're strongly promoted and in his book. Now, he, he's, he's soft on certain... He doesn't go on and on about reprobation, for instance. Yeah. There are some things he doesn't talk much about, but he hardly mentions at all this idea of the, of the church-state way of thinking. Hmm. That is something which in the revival times in the 1800s, people came to 
as they had over the previous centuries come to see is a bad idea. The church-state arrangement is a bad idea. Okay. And over in England, where if you're a, a patriotic Englishman, well, to be English for many years meant to be part of the Church of England. Yeah. And yet they came to see how very bad the church-state thinking was. This idea of going off on a holy war in which you're going to justify killing people when World War Two, or excuse me, World War One happened, people noticed how the, the Germans, the Russians, the Austrians, and the English, they were all, they'd all get their ministers together and they'd bless their troops before they went off and killed one another. And the French too. They're all doing that. And they think, what's the deal? Interesting. You, yeah. you know, you're turning, turning every conflict you get into into a holy war and asking God to bless it. So that whole way of thinking of the church-state idea has came under attack. And it, and it came under attack by people who came to see that we are not like Joshua cleansing Canaan of the Canaanites. That's not our present role. There may be a time when God will send his son out of heaven. He'll come riding on a white horse as a conqueror. Yeah. But presently, we're not in that present role. Hmm. The Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He didn't come swinging a sword. When Peter cut off the servant's ear, he said, put your sword back in its sheath. Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. So he rebuked the idea that his servants would be a kind of military militia going off to yeah. uh, and, and using the power of the state to further the interests of the church. Yeah, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight. <clears throat> exactly. It was Augustine who really had promoted the idea in his debates with the Donatists and fighting against the Donatists in Northern Africa. He had promoted the idea of using the power of the state in order to quell what he viewed as heresy. Now, we look back, knowing what we know now, at what the Donatists held and believed, and we're not quite so sure they were heretics. They may not have been heretics. According to Augustine, he felt they were. And so he used the power of the state to force the Donatists and actually encourage persecution against the Donatists. And, and he took that passage where when the Lord Jesus said, if you don't have a sword, sell your garment and buy one. And then Peter stands up and says, Lord, behold, we have two swords. And Jesus says, it is enough. Hmm. Now he wasn't saying that with two, two, uh, two machetes that the, that the disciples are gonna become now an armed militia. Yeah. He says, it's enough. If you need a tool to go out and cut down a bamboo or, or something else, that's enough. You don't need anything more. Or to chase off a wild dog, you don't need anything more than two, two swords. But Augustine, taking the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 22, he says, Behold, we have two swords. Jesus holds up two swords. That is the church church 
has the word of God, that's the sword of the spirit, and we also have the sword of civil government. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he promoted that idea. Augustine introduced the idea as a doctrine in the church, it was followed by the Roman Catholic Church during the Dark Ages, and Cromwell continuing on in that tradition used the power of the sword. But conscientious men like Daubigny, as a good, honest historian looking at it, yeah. in spite of his own prejudices, he openly questions it, like how can a real Christian do what Cromwell did? Hmm. So Oliver Cromwell, uh, he'll have to answer to God for all of that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so J.I. Packer, he's going to praise the the Puritans, but he doesn't ever really get into it on this one issue. They're saying that this, uh, the, uh, uh, the tendency of the dispensationalists of the last hundred years or so who have ignored the Puritans, they're, they're greatly ignorant and they should never have done such a thing. Uh, yeah. My point is this that we are hugely indebted to the, what the Reformers taught. We are hugely indebted to what the Puritans taught as far as the truth. But it is very obvious that because of some policies and doctrines that they held, that what they had was partial. If you're going to hold on to the church-state idea, there's some very foundational things you don't understand about the Word of God. You don't understand about the agenda of the Lord Jesus and the teaching of the Apostle Paul or Peter and John. Very basic things. And if the evil uh, dispensationalists who arrived in the 1800s start to correct this, praise God. Praise God, because it needed to be corrected. Yeah. They were the ones who stood up and said, the state-church arrangement is wrong, and we have an entire body of doctrine which we're going to teach from the Scriptures, which demonstrate why it's wrong. So, is the teaching of the dispensationalists 1800s a big step backward, and is it a return to antinomianism, and, and is, it, uh, is it a bad thing? No, it was a very good thing. It's a very good thing. And we should all be down on one knee thanking God for these men who saw those matters clearly. And another point, and this is where we started, and G.I. Packer frankly talks about this. He talks about how the Lutherans began by saying, you can have assurance of salvation. That's what Luther himself taught. Mm -hmm. Every Christian should have assurance of salvation, but the Lutherans backtracked on it. Huh. The Puritans, they, were, they taught it that it's possible to have assurance if you seek it, but most Christians and many Christians do not seek it and do not have it. And they kind of, they treated lightly and, and did not make a huge thing out of the whole idea of assurance of salvation. But when the revival times came in the 1800s, people started singing Fanny Crosby's beautiful hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. 
Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm going to read that, that hymn. It's such a beautiful thing. Blessed assurance, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. It's the idea of assurance, knowing, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. So the Roman Catholics had taught that to claim that you had assurance of salvation is a sin of presumption. It's a very bad thing in their system. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther preached against that thinking and said, no, you can't. But the Lutherans backtracked on it. Yeah. The Arminians, like Wesley, they also, they, they would teach that you could momentarily know that you're forgiven, but you couldn't finally know that you're going to be forgiven. Really? Yeah. Yeah, you could, you could have assurance in a momentary way, but not about your final state. You could not say, I know that I'm going to be in heaven. Even though John, 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Yeah. Yeah. And that you may continue well, to believe in the name of the Son of God. Well, they might have thought about knowing you have eternal life as I can know that I have eternal life at the moment. But what is eternal? Eternal is unending. Yeah. So if I have eternal life, does that mean I will ultimately in an unending way be with Christ? We would say yes. I don't know how they reasoned around a, ver a plain verse like 1 John 5 verse 13, but they did. Interesting. Yeah. I'm just saying that that the the our, our Roman Catholic forebears, those saints that lived in the Middle Ages and were part of the state church. They had a standing doctrine. Whether everybody believed that way, I doubt it. But, but that was the doctrine of the church generally. The, in the Reformation time, they would teach that some, the reformers themselves, taught that you could know that you were saved. But they might also simultaneously say, most Christians don't know that. And the Puritans would say that, you, yes, you can know, but if you seek it, you, if, as you seek it, you, can, you, you might receive that sense of assurance. Interesting. But when the, and, the, and then, of course, in, during the time of the Great Awakening, very similar, uh, um, momentarily have assurance, but not have a final assurance. But in the time of the revival, in the 1800s, as people were studying the word, a keynote of the revival times was celebrating our full and free salvation. And they came to see that all Christians can have assurance. It's what the New Testament calls the hope. Every man who has this hope, 1 John chapter 3, yeah. every man who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. 
And John speaks of it as something which all Christians have. All Christians have the hope. That is the assurance that ultimately, it's a sense you have. Yeah. And interestingly, even our Arminian friends, they'll have the sense that, you know, I, I yeah, I, I'm right with God. I, I, I know I am. They may not have the doctrinal sense of it. Yeah. In other words, to be able to explain it to somebody, but they have the hope in them. Yeah. And although hope, they're shaky on it. And hope in Scripture is not like today we have hope as in like a guess. Like it's an uncertainty in, a, in our modern English. We use yeah. the word hope, like, man, I hope so. Whereas biblical, the biblical use of the word hope is a certainty. Yeah. So it's totally different, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's the opposite <laughs> of what. Of what we use it, you know, we, yeah, well, I'm sure hope he shows up. Whereas in scripture, like, yeah, I'm, I hope he shows up in that. I am 100% confident he will be yeah. here. It's the Bible use of the word hope is confidence about the future. Mm-hmm. Whereas people will speak about hope and it's an implied uncertainty. Yeah. I hope to go downtown tomorrow as if to say I might, I might not, and I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm just not sure. It's an expectation, but an unsure expectation. So the New Testament will speak about Christians having hope, but then it will talk about also assurance, and it will talk about the full assurance of your understanding Hmm. or the full assurance of faith and the full assurance of hope. All those expressions are used in Paul's writing. And, and there, you have the idea that while every Christian, the moment you were saved, you have a confidence of your acceptance before God, a sense that I have been welcomed in. All those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out, that he has taken me to be his own, and that I belong to him, and that I'm now a member in the family. And you cry out from your heart, Abba, Father. Hmm. You say, I I am now a child of God. I have been born again. So all those things give a person hope. And that is a common possession of all Christians. Although a lot of people, they do have the hope, but the doctrines they've been listening to contradict it. That's what the problem I'm discussing here. They they go to churches which are unclear on the matter. And, And then... When it talks about the full assurance of faith, the full assurance of your understanding, the full assurance of hope, there it's saying that you can grow in that hope. And as the evidences of new life become more pronounced, so you begin to bear fruit and you, uh, you, you grow in your understanding of God and who he is and his salvation, You have a stronger understanding of what he's done for you. And you see evidences that are unexplainable other than that I'm really accepted by God. God has really saved me. There's no other way you can explain it. You say, it's obviously God's work in my life. All of these things cause us to grow in our hope. So while you immediately receive hope by taking the promise of God, the gospel came to me, John 3.16. I believed it. And I, and I have that sense that God is going to be true to his promise and he's going to save me. He's going to give me eternal life. And so 
I have hope. But then, as I grow as a Christian, these evidences strengthen that hope. They agree with what I first believed. Yeah. That's what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's not the case that just because you understand, for instance, the doctrine of eternal security, oh, you've got hope, that's all there is to it. Well, I understand certain facts about the gospel. And as I embrace them with my heart, I have that hope. But the hope involves a lot more than that. It's something you grow in. It's a lifelong thing. Just like you grow in faith, you grow in your understanding, you grow in your hope. Hmm. Yeah. And that's why evidences are important. A lot of people say, well, well you, you should never look to anything inside of you for assurance. You, all your assurance is what the Bible says and what Christ has done for you. It's true that what the Bible says and what Christ has done for you is the foundation of my hope. But actually having the hope in my heart is something which involves things that God has done in my life. And so in 1 John, when he talks about knowing that you have eternal life, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. The these things that he's talking about are all the things that he said throughout the whole letter, 1 John, in which he talks about how real children of God love one another. So, as I look at my love for God's people, that is an evidence. It's not the foundation of my hope, but it's an evidence of it. Hmm. Yeah. And my knowledge, it, all those who have the anointing, they've received an anointing, which is true and is no lie. And there's things that you absolutely know to be true about who God is, who Christ is, what Christ has done for you. And you're totally convinced of them. Well, where did that knowledge come from? The Holy Spirit himself gave you that knowledge as you read the word of God. Yeah. And that is that <clears throat> understanding that you have not everybody else has that. It's something which has happened in your mind and in your heart, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so that also, it agrees with what you first believed when you trusted Christ. So that doctrinal understanding you have, that love that you have, and also uh, living a righteous life. Yeah. So a real Christian the Bible says, he that does righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. So you, you, you do righteous things. Well, before I loved sin and hated righteousness. Now I love the very things I once hated and I want to do them. And so as you, as you live out righteousness, it's not the foundation of your hope, but it's an evidence of it. Yeah. Righteousness in your life, love for the for the brothers and sisters, a knowledge of God through the anointing of the Spirit. All those things are going on in my life. Mm -hmm. So do I look at my internal evidences not as involved with my hope, as an evidence of my hope I do? Yes, I do. And John encourages it. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, you should never look inside. Don't ever look at anything in, in your life for your hope or assurance. If you do, you'll always be discouraged. 
Well, no, you won't be discouraged. You're going to see things, some things in your life, which are obviously the work of God. <laughs> that, you know, not looking at your sins, but the, what is the real true work of God, that's hugely encouraging. Yeah. And John encourages that. You follow? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it is true that this whole matter of assurance of salvation is an ongoing battle. But it has been clearly taught and was widely accepted during the revival times more than 100 years ago. Nice. And, and it was a big step forward. So you know, for my dear friends like uh, uh, Brother Packer, who love the Puritans, we're, we're thanking God for the good things the Puritans taught. A lot of times you'll listen to people and they'll use little sermon illustrations. Where did they get them? From the Puritans. <laughs> you go read the Puritans and you find a lot of the thinking. For instance, Spurgeon is just full of the thinking of the Puritans mm. about a lot of things. So they taught a lot of wonderful things. But were they the end all? No, they weren't. Were there huge areas about understanding? If they had understood prophecy, they wouldn't have sent Cromwell over to murder the, the, uh, the Irish. Yeah. Their ignorance about Bible prophecy and about the coming of Christ. Yeah. A wanton ignorance, which was also true of the Reformers. If they had understood, they had a good understanding of Bible prophecy, they would not have done some of the things they did. And so they, these, these folks who were so deeply, deeply in love and worshiping the Puritans and ridiculing the dispensationalists, hey, we appreciate the Puritans. Mm -hmm. We all read them too. And we like them. We like a lot of things. But there's some points at which we draw back. Some points at which we say, these were good men, but they didn't have the full story. And the state church issue is a big one. And this whole matter of assurance, why is it that they treated assurance in the way in which they did? Why is it, why is it that they, the, uh, uh, they held it back from Christians and, and left Christians in living in despair on that point? Hmm. So, uh, I, I know that in our day, there is an ongoing battle with a lot of people who teach assurance uh, in, a, in, in a way as if it's strictly a matter of intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel. Yeah. It's more than that. Mm -hmm. It's much more than that. J.C. Ryle probably gives one of the best things. He has a book called Holiness, and in it he has a whole chapter on assurance. Yeah. And in the opening of his chapter, he plainly says that whereas in the past people treated assurance as a rare thing that mm -hmm. only some Christians had, then he goes on to show how real Christians can all enjoy assurance, but then he presents the, the, the way in which we find assurance. Yeah. And it's very sound. <clears throat> and so read J.C. Yeah. Ryle on assurance. He's also a uh, Anglican. Yeah, he, he was a good Anglican. Yeah, yeah. Spurgeon called him the best man in the uh, in the Anglican Church or the Church of England. The best man. That's great. Yeah, that's great. No, that's wonderful.
John Darby, wasn't he an Anglican? Or? He was in the Church of Ireland, which was the Irish branch of the okay. the Anglican thing. So the the Brethren movement owes a bit to... Those well, we're, we're all indebted. We're indebted. You know, in, in, the, in the Middle Ages, uh, way back when, the old timers, they framed doc, Bible doctrine, and when the creeds were being written, we appreciate most all those things which they were doing as yeah. far as stating a belief in the Holy Trinity and who God is and who Christ is. There's a lot of things which we are indebted yeah. to Christians all down through the ages. We're indebted to the reformers for how they stated the three solas, for how they taught justification by faith. Mm. And we're indebted to the Puritans. But we don't think for a moment that these men had everything right. We don't. And it, uh, who am I to say that I know more than Martin Luther? Well, the plain fact is, I uh, Martin Luther, he, he was an expert in so many things yeah. and a giant spiritually. Mm-hmm. But there are some points in which, you know what? I know on some points, I have a better understanding of some points than even Martin Luther did. And it's just the plain fact. My understanding of Christian baptism is a better understanding than Martin Luther had. My understanding on the issue of the church-state relationship is a better understanding. And, and I'm not apologetic for that. Yeah. So, so we, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We look back at these men and we thank God for the good things that they taught. But we do not say that it's an end-all. We do not say we all need to return to the times of the Puritans. That was the high water mark in church history. When the no. Westminster Confession was written. What? Didn't they commission the writing of the Westminster Confession? The Westminster Confession. Parliament. Yeah, yeah that was in the time of the Puritans. That was Yeah. I just I, I remember reading that Parliament commissioned it and I'm like, What? Like yeah. if the Senate, American Senate said to commission some spiritual writing we would be like, well, that's bunk. You know, we, <laughs> well, that's because so, the state church arrangement is so foreign to the way we think. But yeah. that was what, what was going on. So uh, I, I'm making a lot of blanket statements. I understand that. And, and I'm saying that we do not endorse we're against the state church arrangement. And, and I think we have good reasons for it. Hmm. I'm only saying that, that if you were a Puritan in those times... Most of those men thought it was a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the way it was. Yeah, that's where they were so. at. All right. Well, thank you. I, I don't, do you have any final? I'm going to shut it down here. Well, yeah. Let, let's be thankful, but let's realize that as the revivals have occurred, that the church has been steadily and by stages recovering long buried truths. Mm. And the truth of the assurance of salvation is one of those chief things which was, which was recovered during those revival times back in the 1800s. Mm. And it was not a step backward. It was a step forward. It was yeah. a good thing and we, for which we can thank God. Yeah, yeah, I'm thankful for it. Yeah, praise <laughs> God. All right.